What's going on, y'all? It's Dr. G, also known as Mindfully Black, and you are listening to the Honest Human Resources Podcast with Matt. Hey, y'all. What's up? This is Matt, the host of the Honest Human Resources Podcast, a.k.a. me, and I have a very, very special announcement for y'all. This month is... Mental Health Awareness Month, y'all. We have to do everything that we can do to keep, get, and stay into our best tip-top mental shape, y'all. It's so stressful nowadays just going through these not only Rona times, but things in life in general. So we got to do this together. Together, not just me or you, but we have to break the stigma together All month long, we are dedicating every episode this month. And for those of y'all that can't count, that's four episodes. One less than five, one more than three. And we're dedicating those episodes to a different topic within the mental health space. So tune in. Thank you all for listening. And let's get back to the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Honest Human Resources Podcast with your host, me, Matthew Kirby. And today, you know, this has been a very special month. You know, we are, if you haven't heard of or listened to any of the episodes in this month, we are dedicating the entire month to talking about mental health. Because, you know, health is wealth, and especially in your brain, especially during these times right now. So, as you may or may not be aware of, you know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we are going to continue the conversation and talk about mental health in various different aspects. So just like any of my other co-hosts, my guests on this month, we have another awesome and really dope co-host I have for y'all today. And we're really going to be talking about, you know, some of these kind of, you know, stereotypical aspects of mental health you know especially black people we got we got everything under the sun that we think of that may or may not be right so let's just get right into it dr gregory jackson is originally from the east coast he grew up in new jersey and north carolina he completed his undergraduate studies in psychology at the university of north carolina chapel hill he went on to earn a master's degree in mental health counseling from Mississippi College. Gregory completed his doctoral training at Albizu University in Miami, Florida. He relocated then to Fresno, California and completed his postdoctoral internship at Kaiser Permanente. He then completed his postdoctoral residency in neuropsychological rehabilitation at Kaiser Foundation Rehabilitation Center in Vallejo, California. Gregory has several interests outside of work, which includes watching sports, go Niners, traveling, and photography slash videography. Hey, what's up, Greg? How you doing? Or what's up, Doc? Excuse me. How you doing, Doc? <laughs> what's going on, man? I'm doing, I'm doing well. And I can't complain, man. You know, just uh, trying to maintain with all these social distancing requirements we've got going on. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I feel like, you know, by this, by this, point and especially by the time everybody hear this episode I feel like it's going to be like you know two or three or more months before we really kind of get back into it so hopefully 
things ease up a little bit. But at the same time, I'm not trying to be susceptible to no spike, no second wave, you know, yeah. how crazy that be, you know, just to come out, just to go back in. Exactly. That's why they got to ease us into the into the freedoms rather than just saying everybody just run outside and have fun. It's, it's not going to be that simple. Right, exactly. So, hey, we'll see how it goes for sure. So thank you again for deciding coming on to the show. This is going to be a great show. We're going to have some good conversation for sure. But before we jump into and talking about, you know, just mental health in the general sense and also some of those stereotypes, I got to ask you the question that I ask all of my hosts all of my guests. And that question is, how are you a human resource? Um, you know, I think that's actually a really good question. Um, resources is something that we talk about in mental health a lot. Uh, whether that's things that you can access, you know, on the internet, whatever the case is, but even things that are within yourself. And I think that's the biggest thing that we fail to realize when we talk about teaching people coping skills and where they can grab resources from, they often are the source of those things, whether that's resilience, whether that's information, knowledge, experience, it can be a lot of different things. So for me, I feel like um, the way that I'm a human resources in, in, a, in two different fronts. Um, first and foremost, I'm like a big time sponge when it comes to knowledge of stuff. So video, photo, for example, which is now my creative outlet, I'm a resource in that aspect because people can come to me and ask me about how to edit um, software, how to edit their videos, how to edit audio, how to get a certain look um, off, off of their products. So I think in that way, I've been a resource to people. Because um, I know a lot of people in a lot of backgrounds, you know, I'm not an old guy by any means, but, you know, going to school kind of affords you that that extent, extended network. So when it comes to people who need legal advice, people who need HR advice, as you know, is what you do. So there's a lot of different ways that we can connect. Um, and then of course, from a mental health standpoint, I mean, that's where the majority of my professional experience and knowledge comes from. So when people ask questions about how do I approach my loved one about this issue that they're having or in my relationship, or just for me, how do I deal with the fact that when I go outside, I experience these panic attacks. So there's a resource right. in that aspect too. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you've gotten this, you know, all the time or get tired of hearing it if you hear it often, but you know, do folks tend to look at you as a shrink? Or, you know, you hear that good old fashioned, I'm not crazy. I don't even know why I'm here. Kind of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because what I do on a daily, we don't really get a lot of people that come in with, with mental health per se, because neuropsych is a little bit different. But of course, okay. when you, when you do do more of a therapy side, even if you're just going to meet somebody bedside because they were hospitalized for something that happened to them. Um, you know, a car accident and things of that nature, you do kind of hear that. People don't like to feel judged. So the first thing they want to say is, you know, I don't, I don't want to be crazy. And I mean, even in everyday life, when I'm out, <laughs> out of the bar somewhere and somebody will ask me what I do, and then they're like, man, look, I don't think I'm crazy or nothing, but let me run this by you, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. I, I'm, sure you have, uh, I'm sure you have a ton of stories with people just, you know, coming up to you on the side for sure. So, you know, given that you are, you know, not just a doctor, but, you know, technically uh, a neuropsychologist, what are, mm -hmm. what are some of those things that, you know, really help people understand the difference between you with what you do and just being a typical, 
or more perceived like counselor or any of that mm -hmm. nature? What's really those differences? Good questions. I mean, uh, you know, all of neuropsychology, all of the neuropsychologists that you'll come across have formal training in clinical psychology. All our degrees are in psychology. There is no separate degree in neuropsychology. It's more of the training path that you go on. So when it comes to being able to provide therapy and understanding all of the diagnoses that are in the DSM, which is like our, you know, guidebook for all of the mental health disorders, we understand all of that. But what we do in addition and what other psychologists don't necessarily have training in is how to work with the brain specifically when it's injured, um, when it's diseased uh, from a degenerative standpoint. So that's stuff like dementia, Parkinson's, um, a lot of different things that uh, people have heard about. We're the folks that you, uh, your family members will come to when you're trying to determine, are they demented or is this just regular aging? Can they live independently anymore? Do they have decision-making capacity in terms of managing their own finances? These are all things that we might have to deal with at some point with our older relatives, by the way. But, um, you know, you have that, and then you have people who, who unfortunately were involved in accidents, so they might uh, sustain a brain injury or they um, got diagnosed with cancer and they have a tumor and we want to know how that's affecting their brain. So it's a lot more technical in that aspect. So we do more of the diagnosis and assessment and then coming up with a plan to help people be as independent as possible with their limitations. Yeah, no, and I think that kind of makes sense. It's like one of those things where, you know, once folks, you know, do have that same kind of psychology background, I as well, I know for me, when I was getting my degree, I didn't want to go down like the clinical route. Don't get me wrong, shout out to y'all because it's an important field. Whereas for me, you know, even let's just say you and I, we both have a psychology background, but we're applying it in different ways. So for me, you know, I might be the you in the context of the workplace because just just working at HR, man, you got to be everything to everybody. So yep. you know, really dealing with those issues with folks in the workplace, and then mm -hmm. you're you're in the status so you know i don't know maybe one day I, maybe i need to just walk around work with a white coat or something you know, <laughs> folks, hey folks be going through stuff on the job so i know you know, it. I, I know it yeah. and it's and it's really one of those things where i tell people you know psychology is it's a lot and it really can be everything it's just a matter of how you apply it so you know appreciate you breaking down that and i feel like correct me if i'm wrong y'all y'all are part of the folks or one of the folks y'all be doing the um you be looking at the brain waves. I know you said that, but you put the little, uh, what are they called, what, electrodes and stuff on people's heads? No, 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 no. So there's, we're kind of, so for example, like somebody that has epilepsy, they might do that to try to figure out where it is. Uh, we don't mm -hmm. necessarily do it, but we're a part of that evaluation process. So we'll look at the results and then factor that into our testing and see if it matches. So the left side and the right side of your brain do different things. So if I notice that all your difficulties are related to the right side and the right side is where the epilepsy is coming from based on those nodes that were hooked up to your head, then we know that it's consistent. So stuff like that. Um, so we, we integrate with them, but I don't actually do that. I got you. All right, cool. That makes sense. And no, I appreciate you giving that, that rundown, everything is true. I might, I might take this on the tangent talking about psychology, but That's all good. <laughs> Give back to uh, mental health. You know, is mental health really a white person's thing, or what's what's up with that? That's that's something that we hear a lot. You know, is mm -hmm. is that white people have therapists, black people don't. You know, when you when if a black person comes up to you just in a normal social context, yeah, my therapist said you get a lot of side eye. 
You know what I mean? Like, what would you mean your therapist? Like, what, what you got going on that you couldn't figure out at home or work yourself through, man? Like, that's, it's considered something that we just don't do. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we're, we don't think that we get the same mental health diagnoses and disorders that white people have. Um, and I, and unfortunately, that stereotype is, has been strong held um, in our communities for a long time. But I think that in recent years, maybe within the last five years or so, you've got a lot of celebrities, black celebrities, black athletes, even Dwayne Wade, uh, Dwayne Wade talking about when he retired that he probably was going to have to have a therapist because he has to adjust to life after basketball. It's starting to become more normal and people are realizing that we get diagnosed with things at the same rate as everybody else. It's no different. You know, that, that 25% rule applies to us too. So, you know, one in, one in four uh, or so is going to have depression or anxiety at some point in their lifetime and that it's normal to experience that. And it's actually a source of strength to go get help rather than a source of weakness to not be able to manage it. I got you. No, and I feel like, you know, especially with us, with Black people, you know, I just feel like in general, we carry, you know, like just so much weight nowadays, you know, whether it's, you know, dealing with constant microaggressions or discrimination or institutionalized racism or, you know, you Mm -hmm. go down the list, you know, we, we deal with a lot. And I and I feel like at some at some point, you know, we may compart compartmentalize it a little more, mm-hmm. which I feel like, you know, it could be or it could turn into, you know, something that's pretty unhealthy and then all of a sudden we explode in. Or all of a yep. sudden we start in I guess from a family or relationship perspective, all of a mm-hmm. sudden we're starting certain habits or doing certain things that unfortunately turns mm-hmm. into generational curses Absolutely. you know we take stuff through the grave i mean you know it's it's, it's kind of interesting when i think about it you know i feel like you know black people are sometimes i know you said one and four sometimes i feel <laughs> like it's two and four you know maybe even three mm-hmm. and four because mm-hmm. you know we, we just diddle a lot so you know is that kind of one of the like when you get like somebody new let's just say you get a new patient or whatnot you know do you do or do you have to navigate through that person's kind of denial about, especially if they're a black person or a minority, do you kind of have to deal with the extra layer or a set of like denial when working with new patients? Or are they kind of more accepting of whatever the issue might be by the time you see them? I mean, you know, I think first of all, it's, it's very commonplace for minorities, particularly for, for black folks to be wary of uh, medical providers, right? We have had some terrible things happen to us in the past and gotten wrong advice or gotten things that didn't consider what was culturally normal. So the recommendations don't fit us. I mean, that has happened historically. So people kind of already come in with this, you know, a little bit of a uh, um, skepticism, whatever. So they may not necessarily come in fully committed to be on board with what you're suggesting. And this is, you'll hear this from, not just psychologists, but from medical providers too, when they're talking to people about things like diabetes, like, well, everybody in my family eats like that. So why do I have to change? Right. I don't don't know if that's necessarily something that is accurate. Are you just judging me? You know, are you just saying, Oh, well, I'm gonna put this blanket thing. I see this on a test result. I'm gonna, I'm gonna recommend this medication without considering my lifestyle. So I think that's normal. Um, for, for our communities to, yeah, for, for us as providers to hear that and to see that as a barrier uh, from people that come from our communities. Um, 
But also I think that we just don't know as much about when things are wrong, um, whether that's because we weren't taught it growing up, right? We don't know how to identify when we're depressed versus regular sadness. We don't know that the things that we go through are trauma because it's so commonplace. There's uh, so we don't recognize it as something problematic because within our little setting is normal. Right. No, and especially, you know, growing up, I feel like, you know, me, you, and just really any anybody, you know, we could probably think about, you know, growing up and wherever we came from and, you know, some things that could be traumatic, but we ain't mm-hmm. know no better. You know, we, mm-hmm. exactly. you know, we was just, you know, hey, chop it up to the game. This mm-hmm. is the hood I grew up in. This was how mm-hmm. my mom and them was. My exactly. And all them, you know, so we, we, unfortunately, we treat those things as normal when we really should be treating it as abnormal. So I think you bring up a good point. And I don't hear, you know, doctors or really those type of medical and clinical professions, professionals say this. But, you know, yes, you all have had training. Don't get me wrong with that. But mm-hmm. is it is it a certain thing, and maybe this is even from the perspective of uh, professionals that aren't uh, people of color, but do you feel like there's like just certain defaults in terms of recommendations or diagnoses that we've mm-hmm. historically faced, or has it been like, like, I don't know, lack of probing, or, you know, I'm just not really that interested, let me, you know, prescribe mm-hmm. you something? Like, you know, why, why the kind of lackadaisical approach to really helping and understanding at least black people in this context, maybe other people tell us. Well, I think, you know, a a couple of reasons can kind of explain that. First off being, if you don't have any experience with the background of the culture, then you don't know what questions to ask to identify, is it culturally normal to do these things? So, you know, in mental health, there's this big focus, especially again, in more recent years on what we call cultural competence and understanding how culture plays a role in how we behave, how we eat, how we think, how we feel, all of that. Um, you know, I think that's a part of it. The second part is that because a lot of this, um, these visits that we have to medical providers are cut short because insurance dictates how long they can be. So in 15 minutes, okay. it's hard for me to really ask, you know, if I was an MD or whatever, to really ask all those questions about culture for you to really feel heard because within that 15 minutes, I also have to tell you about these meds you need because of these labs. And so they're giving you these formulaic answers because they got to get you in and out in 15 minutes. So I know that a large part of it is that it is a little different with mental health. Um, and mm-hmm. then we get more time with our with our patients. We usually are 30 minutes on the on the short end and 60 minutes on a normal. So in an hour, I have a lot more time to really talk to you about, you know, what's going on um, in your background and your life and your culture and how all that plays a role. But in 15 minutes, that's almost impossible. Um, and sometimes it is honestly just people don't want to believe that cultures are different and that that plays a role because it makes it. It, it adds proof that they need to do more learning and they kind of just want to accept, well, our bodies are all the same. Science is all the same. So it doesn't matter what your culture is. This is the answer. This is what you need to do. And that eliminates uh, minorities from buying in because they feel like their, their experience is not being um, taken into consideration. Yeah, for sure. And I, I feel like, you know, that, that in and of itself could be a whole nother show shoot hell, mm-hmm. maybe a whole nother podcast where we talk about, kind of like that relationship y'all is like doctors and other medical professionals have or guidelines that you all have to 
kind of play with in terms of, you know, what you can or cannot do with insurance. So do you feel like, you know, maybe even in your own situations, you know, do you have like flexibility or wiggle room to be like, you know, hey, you know, here's a free consultation or, you know, something that would either A, make potential patients at least or potential clients be a little bit more at ease or even B, perhaps, you know, do something that'll help not only advertise the services, but also kind of like encourage people to come in or is it just more so, you know, like, Hey, this is what insurance says. This is what I'm working with. Well, I think that, you know, within the confines of the office visit, I try to address whatever the main present problem is because that's what they're there for. But within that, I try to point people in the direction of additional resources and I'll take that extra time to send the email out to say, hey, here's, remember we were talking about this thing or this thing came up, here's something that I really want you to take a look at that might be helpful. It's a free app that you can use to track your mood or it's a free app that you can use to track your headaches or whatever the case is. So trying to make sure that I go above and beyond to make a person feel like they're being supported because I think that's the best thing you can do to really get that confidence in your patient that, you know, they trust that you're looking out for their best interest and not just doing the bare minimum to do your job. I can't say that everybody's like that, but I definitely, you know, I try my best to be as consistent with that as possible. Um, and when there's culture, when there's a cultural component, I, I like to ask questions. I'm not afraid to say, I don't know, or enlighten me on how you're called. Cause it might be somebody who's not black that I'm dealing with. And I'm like, okay, I don't really know as much. I don't have that same experience. So enlighten me what's culturally acceptable. How do you all deal with this normally? Right. No. And I think that makes, I think that makes a lot of sense. And you know what, honestly, I'm just trying to think in my own life, you know, I really, you know, just given like all the interactions with doctors I've had, whether, you know, regular checkups, counselors, whatever the case may be, you know, I don't hear y'all generally say y'all don't know. So I like how <laughs> you do, when you do say that to the people you work with, you know, I feel like it's a sense of humility and humbleness. And, you know, you're not just acting like the expert just because you've mm -hmm. been studying it for umpteen years. Absolutely. I think that's important. You know, I, Nobody wants to be talked at, you know what I mean? They want to have a conversation. I mean, we, I, I could say personally, I used to hate when my parents would do that, when I felt like they just, they just knew everything at the, at the moment. And, and it was more because I say so instead of considering what things might be different now. And my experience in life is different. And that's, as I get older, that's the thing that I learned, you know, is different for these kids in high school now, for example, than it was when I was in high school. So when they come in, um, when I have young adolescents that come in with difficulties, then I have to ask them questions because sometimes I might not understand something that they're experiencing because I didn't go through that. So I can't pretend right. to know everything. Like I might know general things that can help, but I got to tailor it to each individual person that I see across from me because none of us are the same. Even within a culture, there's subcultures. So within Black people, people from the South are different than people from the Northeast. And you really got to understand that to be able to help people the best. No, absolutely. And I, I can't agree with you more. Now, I do want to go back to one thing you were saying earlier, and I had to make sure you mean mm -hmm. to tell me, especially when we think about like church and religion and spirituality and all that, you mean to tell me we can't praise the crazy away? 
<laughs> you know, uh, I, I think that this is probably, that was originally, I think, the biggest barrier to Black people seeking mental health. Um, you know, it, it is true that we have some other stereotypes, which we can get into later, but I think the biggest thing was, well, if you can't, if you can't manage it on your own, then the only source of strength you need is prayer. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with having faith that, you know, your Lord or whatever, whoever it is that you pray to is going to help you remove that stress from your life. It's never a bad thing to get extra resources because that's something that obviously has been made available to you. So if you believe in, um, you know, a higher power, whatever the case is, putting things in your path to help you, then one of those things might actually be mental health. So, um, and I think that there are actually now a lot of programs that combine the two. There are some programs where you can um, go to uh, theology school, but then also have a degree in counseling, because if you're going to sit down and talk to somebody about depression, anxiety, and you really need advice on how to deal with it beyond just go home and pray, your clergy, your regular clergy, uh, clergyman may not be qualified to do that. So you need that extra an extra little bit of information from somebody who understands that religious spiritual side it helps you incorporate that but also gives you the balance of well in addition to this you should try this too um and i just think that you know we're taught oh well if you give up one on you know your your faith that it's going to get better then your faith must not be true you know you get all those types of judgmental statements too so it's, it's a lot that comes along with that no, for sure. And I, I feel like, you know, just thinking about that, you know, a lot of folks when they're in that, I don't think there's any anything wrong with this. You know, you may, you know, go to church or go to your synagogue or anything like that and talk to that person. But, you know, in your opinion, you know, what what should the people really understand in the sense of, you know, there's a difference between getting advice and maybe even just having them have an active listening ear, your pastor, mm -hmm. by, you know, priest, whoever, versus actually getting some cold, hard counseling. So, like, what's the difference between advice and counseling? Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's um, something that my friends and I talk about a lot, too. It's a really good question. Usually when people are giving you advice, it comes from a couple different places. It could be something that they've done in the past or what they would do in your shoes. Um, or it could be something that they don't have the courage to do, but they're trying to get you to do it because it's what they think that you need. Uh, versus counseling is really for you to help you figure out the best answer. So we're not actually telling you what to do. We're saying, what is it that's your end goal? What are some things you've done in the past to deal with something similar? Because that helps us identify what resources you already have, and then we add whatever missing resources might be to that. So counseling is much more of a collaborative process versus advice is kind of, I'm talking at you to say, hey, this is what I think might be best. I hear what you're saying, but this is what I think you should do. It's a very big difference. Like we don't, you know, we don't um, just give you the answer. There are some modalities that can be like that, and sometimes therapy can be what they call directive. So I suggest that you do a sleep log to monitor your sleep, but that's very different than, ah, uh, this is what I would do if I were you. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. that's, that's what advice usually sounds like. You know, I, if I were you, I would do this. That's, usually you can tell just by that statement. Right. No, and I think that's a big difference for people to know, because it's like, you know, yay, you know, we all got, 
you know, religious figures or mentors or whoever we look up to. We mm-hmm. all got best friends we look up to or mm-hmm. talk to, siblings, family, whatever the case may be. But, you know, sometimes I feel like we blend advice and counseling together. And it's not always sure. the same thing. You know, and I feel like, if anything, for you all on the mental health side, you know, at least, if anything, y'all, y'all have that unbiased opinion. You know, it can't mm-hmm. be the same you know, if me and mom's having an issue, you know, I don't know if, you know, going to my sister or my father yeah. or my brother might be, you know, the best place, mm-hmm. you know, going situations like that. Not to say, you know, that can't work on a more surface level and things like that, but mm-hmm. sometimes it is better to have that person that don't know you like that, right? Exactly. You walk in there, clean slate, I don't got no biases about you. All right, talk to me. What What's on your mind? kind of exactly. thing so yeah and, and that's and that's really a big difference for sure so mm-hmm. i think i think that really and it kind of reminds me now that i think about it sometimes i'll say we as in a collective all of us we do kind of treat you know certain like medical professionals or definitely mm-hmm. counselors in general as like strangers and it's yeah. like we can't you know it's like hey if i if i don't know you i ain't talking to you like that yeah. or you know you know yeah. nothing about me so you know what? What's up with this thing about strangers and is stranger danger really a thing yeah. when it comes to mental health? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's you know, as funny as it is, that's really kind of a thing. I mean, you know, that comes from that. That's way back in our in our history. You know, just from you can't trust anybody outside the family. And I mean, and that was true because it was from a survival. That that mentality comes from a survival. Um, uh, perspective right where i can't talk to these people from this other plantation about what we're experiencing because i don't know what they're going to go back and tell master and how that's going to affect me right so you talk about a slave mentality that's kind of where it comes from but then also when it comes to black communities more modern times is why don't we don't want to say these things and show people what our weaknesses are because we already have enough issues that's just another thing they could use against us to hold us back and Mm -hmm. so there's this belief that there's going to be a consequence from being honest that comes with our dealings with police. And, you know, you're thinking that you're, that's this person is on your side, but they're not or lawyers or whoever that you're sharing honest information, you've had a negative consequence. So I think that's part of where it comes from. But what people have to understand is that it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing to talk to somebody who has no um, real affiliation with you. Cause like you said, you know, talking to my sister, talking to my auntie about what's going on, I don't know what that person's hidden agenda is. I don't know, you know, if they're stable enough for me to even have that conversation. Cause sometimes that's a problem. We just don't recognize it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we come to somebody who's objective, who's not looking at us from, oh, uh, that's this just another time where you, you feel like this. So this is just, just like that time where you was dealing with, I don't have any of that. So I'm helping you figure out what you want to do without that prior experience of all the things you've, uh, failed at or were successful at in the past it helps us start with a clean slate not only that but counseling is the safe confidential place so you don't have that fear we actually get in trouble if any of your information ever gets out like we can't even disclose that stuff to attorneys um, without expressed written consent and even then it's only certain things that we can disclose so it's a right. lot more it's a lot more legal protection um, and HIPAA stuff that's all involved to where you don't have to worry about your information getting out anymore versus you go to talk to somebody else. You have no idea. They could be telling their 
husband, which is what people normally do, right? We talk to our significant others about something we heard, but we can't do that. Like legally, ethically, we are not allowed to do that stuff. So you don't have to have that fear anymore. I just think that's just the old belief that's been passed down for so many generations that it's hard for us to grow out of it. I got you. No, and I think that makes sense for sure. Like, and look, y'all that's listening, you know, what he's saying is, you know, they're not going out here about the subtweet or make innuendos right. or different, different posts about y'all business. Now, I will say, I want to make sure I'm being fair. Now, you all, of course, have those protections and restrictions and things of that nature. How does how do those things change when we talk about, you know, when, when you are going through a session or whatever the case may be, and, you know, violence is involved or, you mm-hmm. know, they may threaten to hurt themselves. You know, what, what then are those kind of obligations do you all have? Of course. Well, see, that's, first of all, I think that you bring up a good point. There are exceptions to confidentiality, but a good therapist and a therapist who's following what they're supposed to do should tell you what those things are before you even agree to start therapy. You should know in the beginning, in session one, meeting one, these are the things that are exceptions to this confidentiality that you and I have. And the reason why those things are exceptions is because if I know, for example, Matt, that you were going to hurt yourself, you're my patient. I don't do anything about it. And then you hurt yourself. I'm legally liable for that because I did nothing to help you, even though I knew that was the case. So Mm -hmm. if you are a danger to yourself, if you're a danger to somebody else, if there's child abuse, if there's elder abuse, those things are what we call um, mandated reporting situations. So by law, California state law, you have to tell a certain authority um, that this thing is happening, that this person is a danger, that they may need to be hospitalized and watched because protecting you is the main number one priority above all else. So even if that means you'll never come back to therapy again because I had to hospitalize you, well, at least I kept you from dying. Yeah. And yeah, hopefully, and, and, you know, you'll no, get some help later. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes, and, you know, we see this play out on TV shows or maybe even in real life, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes uh, the person, you know, in a situation like that, don't always get it, you know. So if you're throwing somebody yeah. on a, I don't know, a 72-hour hold, you know, they're like, uh-huh. what the hell, man? You know, I'm right. good, you know, right. you know. Let me out of here. And and it's one of those things where sometimes it's, we, I got to help save you from you for mm-hmm. you mess up, you know, and do something. So, you know, I kind of like that responsibility for sure. You all are probably, you know, keeping 99% of things confidential, but when it crosses mm-hmm. over, fine, you know, hey, you know, I, I got to do what I got to do. So, no, I like exactly. that. And I feel like people need to hear that. And I think it makes sense. And then just kind of thinking about this whole thing, you know, should should someone who realizes and understands that, you know what, I, I'm going through some things, you know, just in general, whether emotionally or mentally or whatever, should that be looked at as a sign of strength versus a sign of weakness? Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's uh, that's a, that's a, a major talking point that I like to emphasize to people when they first come to me. And even if I'm doing um, an emergency room consult, you know, right now with everything that's going on, we're doing those by video. But if somebody's at yeah. such a low point that they're thinking about hurting themselves, but in that moment, they're still able to recognize, I don't want to do this. I think this is my only option. But because I'm at this point, I need some help. I think that's a huge source of strength. 
It takes a lot of courage to be able to admit to somebody I'm thinking about hurting myself. It takes a lot of courage to admit, I, you know, these are regular life things. I know that, but everything's piling up. And right now, I don't feel like I have the internal resources to manage that by myself. We as, as black people, and especially as men um, in particular, we are taught, you got to figure it out. There's no time mm-hmm. to be dwelling in the emotion. You got to be solution focused at all times and you got to be on point at all times because nobody else is out here to help you. And that's again, that every man for himself mentality where we don't, we don't hold that belief in mental health. And I think that when people can say, you know, yeah, sometimes I'm sad, but this feels different. Sometimes I get scared or nervous or worried, but this feels different. And recognizing that it's now gotten to a point where it's above what you normally experience and saying, okay, let me let me see what can be done about this. That's that's a source of strength. And we do that regularly, even if we don't recognize it. Sometimes when we're stressed out, we're like, all right, if I just take a drink, I'm gonna calm down, give me a few minutes and I'll come back and deal with this, right? Or I gotta go step outside because I'm so mad right now. If I say something to my wife, I'm gonna curse her out. So let me go outside, calm myself down. That's recognition of the fact that something has reached beyond our point of control and we need something to help. It's just, it's not always the best way to manage it. And I think that when you kind of can point that out to people that this is something that you actually already do, you just need more than what you would normally do. Then it makes it feel normalized. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And you know what, you know, just thinking about what you're saying, you know, sometimes it can be, I don't know, maybe it's a fine line, maybe it's a line in the sand, but, you know, sometimes I even wonder, like, for myself, you know, it's like, all right, what's the difference? And, you know, this situation is happening. I feel myself feeling some type of way. Let me go on a walk or let me mm-hmm. go on a run versus, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm feeling some type of way about this situation, and maybe I need to see somebody who can help me through this. Like, how would you how would you kind of tell people to kind of understand and know you know when it's you know hey i'm gonna blow off steam and when it's like just something bigger yeah um i think it depends on how long it lasts and that's that's the piece that we also gotta remember because we like to over pathologize things sometimes oh you gotta be depressed because you're crying today well Uh, if i was fine yesterday and i'm gonna be fine the next day and i just had a rough day sometimes you just have a rough day or a moment of being upset and I need to blow off some steam. And especially if it works, if you go out, you, you, you go for that run, you go for that walk, you feel better and it doesn't come up again, then it's probably not a situation where you need to seek treatment for it. But if we're talking multiple days in a row or if that normally works and it stops working, that type of thing, those are the signs that this is now above and beyond what's normal for me. And all of us have a different threshold for what we can and can't tolerate. For some people, they might reach that point faster and other people, it might take a lot more for them to get there. But it's when you recognize that this has been happening for a long enough period of time with no breaks and it's affecting other areas of my life because I just can't get past it, it's, it's that time. Yeah, and I, I really feel like, you know, sometimes that can be like a, like a tricky part you know, you kind of mm-hmm. in that very instance or moment, you know, you're kind of self-diagnosing yourself, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, you got you got one one side of you saying, you know, hey, you know, you might want to, you know, talk to somebody. You got the other side saying, you know what, I ain't crazy, you know. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, they're not gonna get to me, kind of thing. But they sometimes they might get to you, and it's yeah. and it's one of those things where, especially in the gray area, 
you know, are what kind of resources, generally speaking, what kind of resources would you say folks can kind of tap into to either, I'm not going to use diagnose, but either kind of like identify something while they're waiting, let's just say, for their appointment? Because, you know, you can't always schedule an appointment with somebody on the drop of a hat. So how do, sure. you, how, do you, how do you recommend people get through that little gray area? And there's so many different things that can um, be self-help. I mean, there's, you can literally go into Barnes and Noble, um, you know, if you happen to have one uh, around you or Amazon to look for self-help for and whatever the thing that you've been experiencing, whether that's sadness or self-help for anxiety or worry or whatever the case is, there's a bunch of different apps um, that people can pull up to help them monitor their mood and might give them relaxation tips or relaxation sounds or help them engage in deep breathing when they get stressed out. Um, but I think as I think even more than that, uh, you actually brought up a good point of somebody might tell you you need to talk to somebody or, or vice versa. They might tell you, nah, you fine. You just got to suck it up. We've got to learn the language of being supportive of somebody and asking them, you know, what do they need from me at this time? And I think that most of us don't live completely in isolation. We have people around us, but we got to do a better job as the people around people to start recognizing when somebody is off. And instead of trying to tell them what we think they should do, start asking questions, start being more inquisitive because we can pick up on those signs. A person who's in a crisis may not even recognize that they're in a crisis or be in the right state of mind to be able to put those types of resources together. So we got to be able to recognize that and try to encourage them to let them know we're on your side. I want to help you get better. I'm thinking this might be something you can do. I understand if you're not comfortable with that, here's some resources, you know, online that you can use. But if you, you know, if you're willing, I think it would be helpful for you to possibly talk to somebody, you know, and, and just use a more supportive yeah. language versus judgmental or, this is definitely what you need to do type language. Cause that all that does is make a person feel even less and less seen and less and less supported. No, I think that makes sense. And I know we've been kind of looking at and talking about, you know, mental illness and, mm -hmm. you know, going to talk about a counselor under one kind of context, you know, in the sense of when you, when you need it, but, you know, are we working on it? Or you feel like there's been like progress with, you know, just, doing it more proactively, you know, like you go to mm -hmm. a doctor, let's just say most healthy people go to a doctor maybe once or twice a year for checkups, you know, yeah. should mental health be like going in that direction where, you know, you just yeah. go and, you know, kind of vent and, you know, you just do it, do it like it's nothing, you know, mm -hmm. should it be more like that? Yeah, I think, you know, it depends on the system that you're within. I can only really truly speak from the, the perspective of my employer and that I know that primary care does screen for that in terms of, you know, how's everything been going with your sleep, with your appetite, because changes in that could be a sign of possible mental health stuff. How are you dealing with work? How are you dealing with this COVID situation we got going on? And when people say things like, you know, I'm having a tough time, which A, requires honesty on their part. And I think that's what we have to do as patients is to be honest with what's happening because nobody's going to know um, that you need help if you're not talking to your providers about that or talking to people around you about, you know, your honest experience. Um, but I do think that there is a trend kind of towards that where other disciplines are starting to recognize 
key words, key phrases, things that people say. And hey, you know, it sounds like you, you know, you brought this up today, even though this is physical therapy, you brought this up that, you know, having a broken leg has been really tough because you can't play basketball or be around your people. So, you know, I, I'm thinking I might be able to put in a referral for you to talk to somebody to, to help deal with that. Because sometimes that emotional piece is also a part of your recovery or you feeling better, right? So I think that it's, it's trending that way, but it's not fully there yet. I got you. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, maybe it's something slow and steady or, you know, maybe folks are becoming more accepting to it. But, you know, it seemed like I feel it'll be, you know, kind of beneficial if, you know, we could stigmatize it less, you know, mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. in the make sure, you know, it's just a part of, you know, hey, get my eyes checked, you know, get my body weight checked, get yep. my mental health checked. And, you know, yep. it's, just, it's just a casual thing. It's like, Dang, bro, you ain't, you ain't went to, you know, check in, you know, with your with your doc yet? Kind of that yeah. So, you know, I feel like, you know, we may get there for sure. But, yeah. you know, just thinking about that, I feel like I won't call it a problem. Maybe it's an area of opportunity. But, you know, what's up with the lack of uh, black folks in, in these spaces to even be these doctors and clinicians mm. and everything? So sometimes, you know. I don't want to. I don't want to have to worry about going to the to the white man all the time. You know, where where y'all where y'all where y'all be hiding at? You know, that's that's actually a, a a big problem I think in in all of um, the helping professions. You know, I mean, obviously we are minorities, so it'd be unrealistic to expect that we're going to become the majority in a helping profession. That's not what we're saying, but it's just so many people who, you know, feel like they can't find a provider that they can identify with. And that's across all levels of identity, whether it's somebody who's black or a black woman or somebody who identifies with a similar sexual preference as you or understands that that preference. There's a lot of different barriers to, to accessing mental health care um, in all levels of care. And I think part of it is um, that we, when you come from a background of not having a lot, your first priority is to have something. So it's a it's a long it's the long game when you talk about being a doctor or a therapist or getting a master's degree or a doctoral degree. We want to go get that undergrad if we're gonna do that and then come right out, start working and getting this money. So it's less appealing to look at that seven year, eight year commitment for, you know, post post uh <laughs> undergrad before we can start really seeing money. I think there's that. Um, I also think that, you know, we aren't encouraged to go into those fields. Um, you, you know, from a prestige standpoint, therapy is not prestigious. You know, it's not something that's glorified, um, kind of like teaching isn't, unfortunately. So, you know, people, people don't want to go that way. They don't even know what the different, different types of programs are that are out there. They're looking more at the stuff that has the attractive salaries um, or it seems more fun or seems more appealing. So they tend to go towards those types of professions, um, I think is that, I mean, and also when it comes to the graduate schools, you know, the acceptance, um, med school has done a better job of this, I think overall in understanding that we perform differently on standardized tests because there's cultural bias on those things, but not all programs feel that way. Um, so they'll say, oh, well, you just don't seem like you make the grades or you didn't do as well on this standardized test. So that keeps us out of school. So you might have to be more creative. Like even me, I didn't go directly into a doctor.
doctor where I went into a master's first and then went to the doctor. So I had to add an extra two years, but I still eventually got there. Not everybody's going to be willing to do that. You know, you get those right. doors. Hey, you know, face. You know, yeah. better, late, better late than never, you know? Yeah, yeah better for sure. Than never, for sure. You know, that's, hey, that's two more years on game you got. So ain't exactly. any, any that. But no, I, I feel like, you know, you, you dropped a lot of gym, man. Like, and I hope, you know, my listeners or at least one of them, somebody can really take something from this episode for sure. You know, I know you can talk about mental health all day, every day. I can definitely talk about mental health, especially in the context of the workplace, because folks is, you know, it's, that's a whole case study in and of itself, especially during these times. But, mm-hmm. you know, I just want to real quick, I just wanted to get your take on this. So it's been it's been a few years since the story has popped up. And, you know, when I think about the situation of the case with uh, Rachel Dolezal, mm-hmm. how she is ranked uh, in NAACP and whatnot, you think she needed to talk to somebody or how, or what What you think going on? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't really know, you know, without having to sit down in front of her to really say, this is what I think is going on. But I do think that there are some people that just, over-identify with other people's trauma, right? And they want to have a story to tell. Um, And I think that with her desire to identify as Black and to be able to say, you know, I get it. I I get what you guys are going through. You know, you hear so much about us saying that white people aren't aren't allies or being allies not enough. What are you doing actively to change things? I mean, I think that's just a very extreme form of trying to do that. Um, and it becomes unhealthy when you're denying that that's what you're doing, when you can't see what you're, what problematic behaviors you're doing as problematic and you lack that self-awareness, then for sure, there's obviously some type of disconnect there that's not allowing you to get to the point where you can acknowledge that or, or you know, or you're denying it. Um, but yeah, I, I <laughs> that was a yeah. very interesting, very interesting time. And then for them to try to create a diagnosis or her to create a label of what, what she was experienced was transracial, which doesn't exist. That's not a thing. That's not, not something that, that people uh, actually are diagnosed with, um, much like affluenza that came out in a, a case of uh, violence. It was something that some rich psychiatrist for rich people made. It's not a real thing. You know, I think that does a disservice uh, when, when people do stuff like that. Um, yeah, but also I went to go because you had asked me a question um, earlier about uh, what things people can do in the meantime, um, and then you had asked me later about black providers and the lack of them. There are some resources that help us identify providers, and I think that's something that's come about uh, much later um, in the mental health game, but is starting to gain some some momentum. So stuff like therapy for black girls, where there's an entire collection of black female therapists, which is great. There is a male version. I believe it's therapy for black men, um, but I don't think it's a .com. I want to say it's a .org. I'm, don't quote me on that, but there is one that exists for black men. There's the Association of Black Psychologists, which has a directory of all uh, minority providers. And then on most insurance providers, you can actually search for a provider by specialty and then by background or by other characteristics. Um, the APA, which is the association of, uh, the American Psychological Association also has a list of providers that you can filter by background. So all those things are possible. 
Um, and within most of those websites that I mentioned, they also have tips and handout sheets for people who aren't necessarily going to go through it there. People just need some pointers. So those are all places that people can get uh, resources for. Got you. No, I, I like that. And I'm glad that you kind of dropped some of those resources for sure. And for those of, you know, folks who either listen or in our area, you know, how can they get in touch with you? You know, how can they have a, another conversation with you? How can they find you online? Uh, for sure. So I have a website that I created. Um, it's called drgmindfullyblack.com. Uh, that's one way, uh, but it'll probably be easier and more convenient for most people to use Instagram. Uh, and on there, I am mindfully underscore black. Um, that's where you guys can reach me for uh, mental health questions. I respond to the DMs uh, as much as I can. And I also have some information on there. I put post free information, free um, advice, whether that's video or whether it's links to things that people can actually reach out to. Um, so that's one way to get to me. Now, if you need videography, photography, that's a different story. I also do that. <laughs> and that's going to be um, vids, V-I-D-Z uh, by G. And that's also on Instagram. If you guys want to see some of my work there, that's cool. You know, it's, all, it's always important to be multifaceted. I think that helps us be happier in life. So. I got you know and appreciate that, you know. So look, if anybody needs to further this conversation alone, and especially if you're in the Bay Area, don't be a stranger. Reach out, you know, get the conversation started. If anything, it's always good at least to to check in a little bit. You know, God ain't say don't go get no mental health. He ain't say that. So mm -hmm. y'all gotta stop playing. You know, you're not <laughs> look, you're not weak if you feel like you know, you have an issue and you want to go talk it out, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. those in our circle are sometimes the folks we don't need to talk about things mm -hmm. with, you know, so go get an unbiased opinion. And most importantly, you know, if y'all do have, you know, some black professionals, black psychologists, psychiatrists, clinicians, whatever the case may be, go on and support them, especially if y'all need help. You know, there's, there's many folks out there willing to help and I just want to thank you for taking this time to, to really chop it up and wrap it up about mental health. Definitely, man. I appreciate you having me. And, you know, doing this, I think, is a big help to just kind of any way we can get information out to our folks. Man, I'm all about that. You know, that's why I started Mindfully Black. It was, it was a way to do that because not everybody belongs to my um, health care provider. Not everybody has access to me through that. So I want to make sure I'm doing my part and giving us free stuff. People will charge you for information. There's a lot of free stuff out there. I don't have to pay people for this type of stuff, man. If you just need some advice or you want to find some self-help uh, self -help tips or whatever the case is, and we, can, we can give you that for free. Don't let these people charge you for that stuff. I know, right? I hear that and no, appreciate it. And this has been a dope conversation for sure. Just in case, this is your first time listening to the podcast. I'm your host again, Matt. And this is how you can reach me. This is how you can follow me. It's so easy. So when in doubt, look on social media. It's at Honest Human Resources Podcast on LinkedIn, Twitter, IG, Facebook. Group me if you have it. So we make it real simple. If you want to feel free to reach out to, you know, Dr. Jackson or any of my other hosts or anything like that, send me an email. Don't be a stranger to Honest Human Resources Podcast at gmail.com because you know sometimes folks don't be remembering so I got to remind them. But nah, uh, I, I feel you. <laughs> out. 
Thanks for getting in the in the seat. For sure, talked about mental health and really breaking it down. But until next week, y'all, this has been another dope conversation, a good topic of and on the Honest Human Resources Podcast.